0: Everything is fun in marketing. Everything is now storytelling is the new marketing. And it's so pervasive that everything needs to be wrapped in a story. So everything is going to sound a lot more convincing when it's humanized in the form of storytelling.
1: Welcome to Discover More Podcast, a community for seekers of curiosity and mental health insights. I am your host, Benoit Kim a trilingual Korean-American veteran and former policymaker. I became a clinician after witnessing the non-negotiable of mental health and nuanced perspectives in our everyday life. I intend to connect and dissect the intricacies of mental health by talking to the most fascinating humans I can possibly find. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency. Let's get this started. This week's guest is Melissa Tan. Melissa is a climate, action, and sustainability advocate, keynote speaker, Malaysian model, and TV host. Melissa even represented Malaysia with her appearance in the popularity reality TV show, Asia's Next Top Model, in 2015, after pivoting from the Big Four consulting firm PwC. Now, Melissa timelessly dedicates her energy to advocating for the zero-waste movement in Malaysia, Singapore, and beyond. Her public speaking mission is to reach 1 million Malaysians about climate action by 2025. You can find Melissa either working with top brands in Malaysia to advocate for the great cause or writing elaborate pieces about sustainability on her blog and social media. And Melissa, I wore my only green shirt for this very special conversation. And welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me,
1: Barney. I'm going to press you a little bit harder, Melissa, and ask you some heavy hitters and juicy questions because I think for a lot of the general public who knows or who views models or modeling, at least my personally, I've heard some dark stories or the dark aspects of modeling, right? And of course, movies and mainstream media really portrays it very dramatically. So not to go that far, but would you be able to uh, paint a more realistic and a more complete pictures of what models go through and some of your own modeling journey?
0: Oh, there is so much to that because this has often been been said, you know, modeling is far from glamorous because people always see the ones that really make it, the ones that are headlining, the ones that are doing big brands, uh, the ones that are walking like major runways, but most of us are impoverished. (laughs) Um, So modeling works where, you know, most of them are living from suitcases for extended periods of time. They're paying Ridiculous expenses to be in other countries. They spend different seasons in different countries on short term contracts and they're usually mobilized by a mother agency. So a mother agency, they control they're sort of like determined where their career goes and they place them in different countries um, where then, you know, they have to cover everything. The model herself has to cover everything, uh, flights, rent, all the expenses. They're just being fronted um, by the agencies, which they then have to pay back with whatever they earn after taking a significant chunk away. So oftentimes... Um, they might not even make money even after we- working for three months. They might just be left back to zero. Um, so it is incredibly hard unless you're one of the blessed in terms of being working really well in that market, making a lot of money so that even after taking all that chunks away, you still might leave with some and, you know, save up towards, um, whatever you want to do in the future. So oftentimes you'll see modeling apartments stacked to the brim with many, many models in bunk beds, paying rents that are, you know, four to five times hiked up. Oftentimes, it will be in very bad conditions because the agencies will try to, you know, minimize their costs, put you in crappy apartments, not care too much about cleanliness and things like that because you can't really control a bunch of young people that much. Um, So imagine having like a lot of random roommates all the time every three months. Not all of them are nice, but you have to get along. So it's not always as glamorous as it, as it looks. But of course, what happens on, on Instagram, what comes up is all the good stuff. It's all the behind the scenes, wearing the most amazing outfits. That is just like a drop in the bucket of, you know, what a model's life look like.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that context. And it's a little bit of a weird connection. But as you know, K-pop has a global phenomenon in the past few years with bts uh pink all these uh groups and i do know that as a korean american myself k-pops prep they go through some serious serious hardships and cramming in small apartments living with a bunch of strangers for five to seven years in a for its very little chance of making it and i see some resemblance between what models go through and what k-pop celebrities and boys group or stars go through so that's very interesting
0: Yeah, if wherever you have young people, it gets easier to kind of not exploit, but yeah, exploit to some extent because they don't really know their rights. They everyone wants a shot of making it big, and you know, it tends to be I'll do whatever it takes, um, even if the conditions are rough. But that's not to say that there aren't great agencies and there aren't great managers. I think throughout, I was very lucky compared to others um, in those similar seasons. you know, I had people taking care of me and I had people who had my best interest in heart, whereas other models really didn't. So then I get to hear horror stories instead of being the horror story myself.
1: Yeah, it's better to be on the observer or the hearer of the horror <laughs> stories than a main character from those. Yeah, I can't even imagine the type of competitiveness and just a part of hardships. And I feel like it's a very lonely profession where only fellow models or fellow maybe actors wanna be or actresses wanna be could only understand. Because even as a content creator in twenty twenty two, you talk about SEOs, the algorithms, the struggles. Most people are like, Oh, it's not what's what's the big deal? You you make money from sponsorships and you all you have to is post videos. You're like, man, you have no idea that how deep the water is.
0: Yeah, I really feel you on that because there was always this feeling like your best friends are still in the industry, you're like, Hey, we got this. Like You and I, we're going to go through the trenches together. Please don't quit because I don't know if I don't have you as my confidant, what would I do? Because, you know, you're working with different people every day and you move countries, you know, or move areas, whatever. After a while, you get desensitized to meeting people and you tend not to form bonds all that strongly after a while because you know that you might never ever see that person again. So there's always this, if I'm in it, you're in it too. I can still hold on and I'm sure that extends to every other industry like what you say content creation is a struggle and it gets really lonely as well.
1: Yeah, I see some similarities between your two of your former identities, one as a former consultant for both KPMG and PwC because I've a lot of management consultant friends. They travel a lot. They live out of suitcase. But of course that lifestyle gets old. But you as a model for four years, you also spent living out of a suitcase, very nomadic lifestyle, almost like a Vega bounding experiences. Uh, could you share some of your highlights or some of the things you've learned and you've taken away from that four years of nomadic lifestyles of living out of a suitcase, city to city, country to country, whatever that may be?
0: So I started modeling uh, full-time really late. It was when I was 27, when most people would already be retiring. Thankfully, Asian skin lasts for a lot longer, so we get to do it for a lot longer as well. And it was really bizarre because starting so late, uh, it meant that the people that I was hanging around you know, living with whatever, they all tended to be a lot younger. So it felt like reliving university over and over again. You know, when you're in dorm rooms, you're like in a hotbed of young people, um, you're going out again, you're, you know, not really being your adult self, you're being like, some version of high school, university. So that was really, really fun. But it also kind of suspended you in time to think that whatever this is, is transient. And You've got to kind of keep your mind on the prize where you have to think about what the next steps are all the time instead of just enjoying the moment. One of the things that really benefited me during that time was because I was, when I was in university, that's when I picked up the worst of my shopaholic habits. I was studying in Australia and that was kind of like the rise of, you know, fast fashion and how everything was always on sale. And I really got dragged into it. I spent most of my time shopping. I spent most of the money I made working part time shopping, which is tragic because, you know, the fast fashion industry is so damaging. And when I left Australia, Left seventy percent of it behind because all of it was worthless. But what was what I did really lose was not was not just money but time, time that I could have been spent building something else or building myself instead of just wasting it on pure consumerism. So when I went into modeling and started traveling uh, and living from a suitcase, then what what I saw was the difference between seasoned models and unseasoned models. So those models that were kind of fresh, new, coming from you know Russia or like Brazil. They, when everything was, you know, them exploring the world and being out of their homes for the first time and then having some form of like pocket money or allowance from the agencies to go and, you know, do whatever, it's very little, but it was also their first time kind of financial managing themselves. When they are, when they're going into like a new market, when there's so much like pretty things to look at, we're all wearing great clothes because we're, you know, the models, they get sucked back into the same thing. Like what I went through in in university, where we're out there shopping, um, because maybe we're in a cheaper market where, and fast fashion is like prevalent all over the world anyway. Whereas the seasoned models, you will see that because they've been on the road for like five, six years, they really know how, they already like have very, very clear minds that, This doesn't help me. I will only buy things that will serve my career because in the end, I need to leave this country to go to the next one. There's only so much luggage space and weight in this. I will have to start leaving things behind if I add more things. That kind of like was my own realization as well. You know, I didn't move from many countries. It was just between three countries, but I kept backflipping and it was so liberating living from a suitcase. I got to dress my best every day because I had a capsule wardrobe going on, I didn't take any time to get ready and I had to look good every day because that's what gets you the job that what's you have to look good and well presented for a casting. It was so freeing on my mind. So when I actually went back to home into my family home, I felt this whole like overwhelming sense of like confusion because then I opened up and I see like decades worth of consumer consumerism in my wardrobe hundreds and thousands of pieces of clothing, none of it was serving me. So then, you know, it kind of prompted me to jump into minimalism and learn from what all the other seasoned models were learning from, how to really simplify my life, stop shopping, uh, and all of that good stuff. And it kind of like broke away the chains of con- like consumerism on me as much as I, as I could. And being a model, because I wear about 100 pieces of clothing every day in like a, a span of an eight-hour shoot if you're doing e-commerce you start to get sick of looking at fashion which all of this might sound like negative things but it's very positive things internally for yourself when you feel it loosen its hold on you and you start to see that these all these things don't really matter
1: yeah that's amazing i appreciate the in-depth of your story because as you said we all live in echo chambers and all these confirmed and this larger group that we subscribe to. But because of that, oftentimes it requires external events for us to forcibly snap us out of this echo chamber. Because you see the same thing every day, you hear the same thing every day. On social media, because of the Instagram algorithm, you see the same hundred people based on how many times you react, how you like. And I feel like when you're in it, you have no idea. So it sounds like a really unique experience that allows you to shed the consumerism into the minimalistic. Melissa 10 that we know today, because I'm also a minimalist. I'm, I have the same six shirts I wear for all my interviews. They're just recorded in different dates so people can tell. During our quality of process of the pre-interview vetting process, one of the responses you shared is that you are looking for the it, like the it factor or the, the big event to break you out or break you into the modeling industries. And you and your dad actually came across an opportunity from what it sounds like that this was a big break you're waiting for. But your dad has some legal backgrounds and the way you guys look it, you're like, oh, this is one sided. It's going to be a huge disadvantage for me, X, Y, and Z. And I reckon it's a very tricky thing to balance the right thing to do in the moment when you're facing the biggest presence, the shiniest squirrel you've been waiting your entire life. How did you balance that? And how did you approach that decision making to say, no, this is not the right opportunity for me does not matter how much I want this internally.
0: So this is a really scary thing because like most people see the shiny thing and think that it's worth throwing away every risk. But it's also very important to see what kind of risk are entailed in that opportunity because not all opportunities are built the same. What is the risk versus the reward? A little bit of background was I was started modeling when I was in university already. So instead of focusing on actual studying, which I did to some extent, I spent most of that time you know, getting to know the creative community in that area, uh, shooting, doing runways, and kind of living out all my dreams through um, that avenue, even though it was a small town. Honestly, it wasn't like a major fashion capital, but there were always creative people. So I, I got to really... Work my creative muscles without having the pressure of it being having to be like a job because I worked other jobs as well. Whereas back in KL, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know the right people. I didn't know the, you know, I didn't know how to go about it. I was so green to it. So I went to exercise my muscles somewhere else. But when I came back, you know, with a university degree, I knew that this investment, all of that money and time into getting that piece of paper, I had to make good on it because. When I came back to KL, it was just the same question again. Like, how do people make money? Like, you, if you only earn like 300 ringgit on a, to walk this runway for today and you only get this number of jobs per month, how does anyone survive? And how do I justify what my parents have spent on my education? So I did the sensible thing and went into consulting. And just bided my time there. I always kept the flame alive. But, you know, as I got older and older and older, that kind of window just kept shrinking and shrinking. So I felt like I needed a big door to open to be able to step over it and then give myself the best shot of succeeding. Because if I was going to scrap at the bottom with everyone else, the likelihood of success was going to be very small for me, especially when there's still a really huge learning curve, because, you know, you still had to learn how to navigate the the industry, you had to learn how to give yourself the best shots at winning jobs and things like that. And I just wasn't willing to do that, because I had so much to lose on this. end. you know, I had like a career to lose, I had like Wasting like my parents' expectations to lose. Um, so it wasn't, I want a, I want a big door. I want a big door to be able to step up on a platform and give myself a better edge because there's all this like power of association, right? When you come out, if you're just another model, you're just another model. It means you have the same advantages and disadvantages as everyone else. But if you step up onto a platform, for example, if you joined like a pageant, a Miss Universe, a Miss whatever, then people associate you with that brand name. And then you can leap further ahead faster, especially when time is running out on your age. So I kept throwing my name in the hat. Um, you know, while I was consulting, I was still going for auditions. I was still going for castings, but I was only going for like the bigger ones. And then I got into the, like a finalist of this certain modeling competition and they were going to bring you to Hong Kong and they were going to, you know, sign you to an agency. But because I was a little bit more mature by then, I think I was 25 and my dad had a legal background. What most young people do is they don't even really read the contract and they kind of just skim through it like, yeah, and then they'll like sign it, you know, and then learn about the repercussions later. <laughs> um, whereas we went through it with a fine tooth comb and like, this is a really one-sided contract. This leaves all the risk on the person signing it. And the agency takes most all of the the benefit. The power balance is so shifted. And we just weren't comfortable doing that. And since then, you know, we've always like made amendments, to contract and say, hey, this is now a more reasonable contract. Will you sign this instead? And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. Like you have to sign it like as is or not sign it at all. And and we had to, I had to really think at that time because I was either going to go be a model in Hong Kong with like represented by an agency and everything. Or I could go back to my consulting life and say goodbye to this forever. At that time, being 25, I thought, if this door doesn't open, if this was a door, then this wasn't even my path to begin with. So I had to decide against everything I wanted because the risk was too big and because the imbalance was too great. So then that really like knocked me back because I thought I shut the door myself. So maybe this just wasn't for me and I had to say goodbye to the dream. But yeah, I stayed foolish and I kept putting my names in hats. I was in the worst place possible because, first of all, I wasn't in the country. I was on an engagement in Jakarta, consulting a bank there. I didn't have any of my gear, you know, like the tank tops, the jeans, the high heels, the book. Didn't have any of that. Barely had any makeup on. I told my colleague, like, the auditions is this week. They happen to be having one in Jakarta. Could you cover for me? Tell the client I'm working on something else. I'm going to it. And she's like, got it. So I skipped work for the day, went to the audition, felt foolish because I was wearing work clothes, didn't have my model gear on. I was wearing work heels, which were this short compared to what you were supposed to wear. And I felt so silly because everyone was... So beautiful, so young. But when I went in and I met the story producers, I was already more mature. I was already better expressing myself. And I think they resonated with my story. The story of a girl who's tried to do this for many years and gave up hope. Went to do all the sensible things in adult life. And this was her last shot. She was such an underdog. She was just silly for being like a 27 year old trying to compete with like 21 year olds when she should just be a consultant they really resonated with that i think and i got true against all odds on my very last year of eligibility and that kind of was the big ticket item and i just like that's it i'm going i've got four years under my belt consulting if this doesn't work out it's fine i can always go back to consulting i don't have to start at the bottom again at like 35 or something
1: Yeah, there is a lot in that story because it's almost impossible for even mid-20s because that's really, really young, right? Like sure, compared to 21s, you're more cognitively mature, but 25 is you're still a child. You're very young. So for you still able to say no to this lifelong dream that you've wanted to do because of the lopsided agreements, that's very, very courageous. And a shout out to your dad, right, who had that legal background to really support you I read this somewhere that America's Best Talent has one of the worst one-sided exploitive contracts. I think one of the subclauses is, of course, if you win, you get a million and all these things. But I'm sure they, they literally say explicitly in the contract, they have the entitlement to do whatever they want. They can use any exploitive content against your wishes, against your knowledge. And anything's aired, they could use it. And they could uh, miscue it. They could screw around. They can misportray it and that's what it sounds like to me a little bit what you went through. So, I feel like in hindsight, it's always 2020, you're really proud of the decisions you made because you might be in a very different positions and we wouldn't be here across from I mean, you could have been a miss universe, who knows, but you know, I feel like you made the right choice under the circumstances at the time.
0: Yeah, and there was it ended up being nothing to regret just making the best out, out of your bed.
1: Yeah, so Melissa, I want to go down the train of fashion real quick, right? And then I wanna ask you about some of the, your decision makings that were involved. So my mom is a fashion designer. Uh, she's retired now. She had this line I will always remember. She said, fashion, it's not about how expensive you can pull off, but wearing the cheapest clothes while still looking the highest class. And that's a, I think a mantra she always subscribed to. So for you as a professional former model, Melissa, How do you view fashion and what are some of like the high level items that for someone to dress better, dress more confidently for people who are listening, who aren't as fashionable and need some fashion advice from a professional like you?
0: This is going to take a bit of a different turn because like I have been surrounded by fashion for a long time, but I'm also a minimalist and because of my activism, I have learned so much more about what the fashion industry and the fast fashion industry entails, um, Really, fashion ceases to be beautiful when the people behind it are suffering, when the environment is suffering because of it. So I think like at the same time, we want to wear our values and not be taken along into the tidal wave of exploitation that the fashion industry is now built upon. Um, I've been, you know getting involved with fashion revolution the largest global activism fashion movement in the world that campaigns for a clean and fair fashion industry and it's really hard to see people and i was like them as well being uh, losing their own identities because trends are moving faster than ever and we seem to be only following them because of all this external peer pressure and influence of marketing uh, directed toward us that is very hard to fight off. So the moment you buy it, it already starts to go out of fashion. And as the minimalists like to say, trendy just means it's going out of style too. And it doesn't really define who you are as an individual. It doesn't really define your um, expression of creativity. I think... When we all start to dress alike, when we start to be copying each other just because it is the current trend of the season, we then cease to question, actually, do I actually like this or is it because I saw someone else wear it? Or is it because it was presented to me on a plate, in a lookbook, in a certain combination and on a really skinny girl so that it looks really appealing and um, they want me to idolize it and try to be like that. Am I buying and wearing this because of that or do I actually enjoy it? Does this serve my life? Does this allow me to kind of wear my heart on my shoulder, on my sleeve and like, Hey, this is who I am. This is how I choose to dress because this is the way it makes me feel good. This is, this allows me to go and do all the things I want because it's comfortable, because it's, it makes me feel and look good at the same time rather than am I doing it because I saw someone else do it? So I think all of us have to really redefine what creative expression means to each of us through fashion, rather than just trying to follow trends. Uh, and that might be really challenging. And I really empathize, especially with people who are younger, because their eyeballs are assaulted by, by marketing through social media and everywhere else, like thousands of times per day on what they should look like this month. And you know my time in Australia and going through the cycle of consumerism myself has really taught me that because now when I look back at pictures I'm like wow that looked really shit on me why did i wear it everyone has embarrassing photos from the the 2000s and the 90s because like how did i think that looked good it was because every celebrity was dressing like that and that was our for like our early versions of influencers right all your friends were dressing like that and all the shops were filled with stuff like that even though, though actually, my body type doesn't carry this really well. Or like, this wasn't even my color. This wasn't even my thing. And, and I looked silly in it. And people, everyone wants to like bury their old like fashion photos. Um, and I think this is just like a repeated process. Like if you and I look at each other now, and then we go 10 years later, we'll be like, oh shit, why did I follow this trend? I looked silly in 2022. So I think if we put boundaries on ourselves in terms of fashion, and really explore where what our real fashion identity is. What are the best things that fit on us? What are the ways that we enjoy it? How can we creatively create wardrobes that are highly curated with often a much smaller number of items in it to be the best version of myself that isn't influenced by external measures? So yeah, that's really where the door opens. If you close one door... Which is the door of consumerism and marketing. You open a door to self-expression and creativity.
1: Yeah, being a I've been a minimalist for about seven or eight years, and honestly, the only downside is I have to do my laundry faster because I have less clothes to uh, go through the cycle of. But it's a very empowering lifestyle because you're making decisions. But as you said, very honestly, that there is some trade-off with authentic creative expressions. If some of your expressions also have some associations with larger brands or larger platforms right so that's a trade-off that people have to do based on discerning what values they really care about so i really appreciate that and then thank you for the ted talk that was very uh inspiring and i i'm motivated to uh, go through my wardrobe and be more intentional again i want to stay on this train in terms of assaulting eyeballs right Uh, you also sounded like a psychologist for a minute because you're right The level of lopsided competition from the large corp, having the best PhDs, the best psychologists, the best branding experts, the best marketers, no individual consumer, doesn't matter how aware you are, how highly trained you are, you can't compete with that level of resources. It's it's not possible. So I want to talk about that large corp. On your social media stories, especially on Instagram, you promote a lot about the awareness about small business fashion businesses get, I call it fashion imperialism, right? Large companies like Urban Outfitters or Anthropologists, on and on, they steal a design from a smaller indi- indigenous or minority groups and then they take their design as their own without giving any credits, without any compensations. And I've seen a lot of you doing that on, on your social media. Can you uh, share some with us to for some people who have never heard about this who are utterly aware that large fashion brands they love is doing some horrible things on a daily basis to small business owners, to really authentic fashion designers. Can you share some of the things that come to your mind?
0: I won't be able to remember all of the, the key ones on the top of my mind, but that's kind of like what fast fashion is, is built upon because of the speed and the volume that it churns out. It means that a lot of shortcuts happen along the way. Thousands of new designs released every single day, for example. Like now it's ultra fast fashion with Shein. They release thousands every day, not just pieces, but thousands of designs. And then you multiply that by 50, by 100 of how many pieces. You can just imagine the scale of it. Because of that, you know, it's about all the shortcuts that they're taking is, you know, workers that are not being paid well. They are being paid poverty wages or maybe not even being paid at all or living in living and working in insane conditions that are not really safe, working hours without breaks, working really long hours without breaks, um, never seeing their family, and it's all just to be able to churn this continuous machine of, of fast fashion. Along the way, because thousands of designs every day, how fast can you really design? It's actually easier to just steal independent designers' designs. So that's just what happens. There are so many instances on social media where small businesses go on and say, this is my design, and this is it in Shein. This is my design, and this is it copied in this other fast fashion brand. And because the power imbalance is so huge where you know that corporation can do whatever they want, and this small corporation over here, this small independent designer doesn't have the same amount of resources to be able to take them to take legal action on them all of it just gets swept under the carpet so it's all also up to the individual to realize that this is going on and we shouldn't stand for it every time you buy something from a fast fashion brand it's very likely that they stole that that design from an independent designer um how fast fashion evolved in the first place its early evolutions were like Zara that was like one of the early brands of Fast Fashion. And their whole business model was built upon wearing the runway. So all the big brands, all the major designers will um showcase their designs, and then the next week you'll see in Zara. Because they already copied what was on the runway. So they you don't even have to wait for ready-to-wear, it will be ready-to-wear for you in Zara copied. <laughs> um and now it's just like a, a mutated monster of that, just faster and more prevalent. So how can a small independent designer, which has poured their blood, sweat and tears and heart into each design, bringing it from paper into, you know, curating it carefully, um uh, making sure, especially if they're an ethical brand, making sure that it was made um, ethically, and does justice to the people who made it all along the way to bring this labor of love to the consumer, to the fashion lover being trampled by a huge, giant fast fashion brand. That will just stifle creativity altogether because that just puts people out of business. That makes, you know, designers just quit because what is the point of me doing this if someone else is just going to take it and none of it is going to go back to me? I might as well just not. So, how it's not really a system that we should be supporting, and we should really, you know, take a hard look at how we consume because while it's cheap, it's cheap for a reason. It's cheap because it took away from so many other people.
1: Man, wow. Uh, I think I underestimated the prevalence of this fashion imperialism that's happening. And my heart died a little bit because Zara is my favorite brand from Spain. Like I love Zara, I was born in Paris, and they're very cheap, as you said, for the quality of their fashion, like Express or Uniqlo from a different country. So now it makes sense why their price is cheaper compared to their competitors because of their practices. So that breaks my heart a little bit, but sounds like I have some uh, examination to do, look at my fashion choices and some of the brands I support as well. Because I, I believe everything you do, and I really believe in the global green movements right trying to reduce waste and do it in a very ethical way so i want to take a slight pivot but on a similar train of large corporations and the power imbalance you've alluded to throughout the episode so far so csr is a concept of corporal social responsibility in america i know you're based in malaysia but csr is basically a more and more common corporate practices for very large fortune 500 companies to dedicate a minimum resource and minimum time to create some positive changes with either NGOs, nonprofit, or impact makers. So for you, Melissa, I know you work with big brands and most of them are very ethical and carefully vetted after, but how do you, Melissa, approach your corporate engagement and what, what are some of the decision-makings you think about as someone who really believe in this zero-waste movement, who really advocate for the causes not just in reducing plastic waste, but as you talked about, reducing textile waste, material waste, and everything in between.
0: Thank you for bringing up that that concept of CSR. I think it has evolved in many different ways because it used to be think it used to be thought of as an add on, like hey, please like pat us on the back because we did something really good, even though this was zero point zero 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 one percent and not even involved in our business. So being from you know a corporate background as well, um, we had versions of that where we went to take or uh, kids from the orphanage to a science park, and I was more excited to be at the science park because I, I I have never been, you know. And it was like an aquarium, and like you had to learn about all like the, the the sea creatures and stuff like that. Um, and the kid, you know, immediately took my hand because they knew that's what they had to do, because they had to appease whoever, whichever culprit was. They want to photo op. They want to make them you know, they want to feel good feeling, like, oh wow, look, I brought this kids from the orphanage to the science park. So they immediately took my hand, eat it and, you know, it, it obviously makes you swell, but then you realise like, oh, it's because they've done this so much. And I said, Oh my God, I'm so excited. Like, look at that, look at that, look at that and the kids like, Yeah. I'm like, you don't seem as excited and you're like, This is my sixth time here. So like, you know, there was nothing that was really building into or investing into the kid because they've been here before. They know they're going to only see you for these few hours and then you, they'll never see you again. Um, and that's But at the end of the day, what we got was a picture. And then that goes into the annual report. And then everyone gets to say, oh my God, look at us. Look what we did for the kids. Really? What did we really do? What was the long-term impact of that? In fact, it had probably made the kid more desensitized to all these human interactions that seem to only commoditize them. You know, CSR had many evolutions along the way. But we have to move away from that version of it, that early version of it. Um, so what I look for when I work with corporations and brands is brands that are holistic and make change from within to become more ethical, more transparent, more, um, to create more benefit within the business model rather than saying, Hey, here's all the stuff we do. Not all of it's good, but we did this outside thing one day and like, that's that's cool right please like remember that you know there's a lot of wood washing green washing happening and it's with all of these kind of activities so we have to change how we do things to make it more ho- holistic um so i i like working with you know small businesses that try and build from the ground up uh to be more ethical and sustainable compared to others in the market it is a challenge to do so because you know when the market is like that you know it, it it means you have to go against the grain to try and figure out different solutions to all these prevalent problems, and you know, kind of MacGyver your way through the situation to redefine what business is. Uh, that's for small businesses, and then for big businesses, they it because the machine is already running. It means there's a lot more effort. You can't just stop the machine and say, "Hey guys, wait, we're gonna be an ethical and sustainable business now." And then we have to like rebuild it. No, you can't do that because a lot of people also like rely, their jobs rely on the machine still running. Their their welfare and living still relies on that. So they have to make structural changes within that. And that can be a multi-year process, but it has to be a process. It has to be, there has to be a curve. There has to be progression to be able to one day say, hey guys, look at what we did. This is how much we've changed every single year until t- this today, I get to say, We are, you know, a more responsible business. An example of that would be the B Corporation certifications. Uh, So these are businesses that go through very, very stringent processes uh, under B Corp to get certified. Uh, They get points and marked against like so many different factors. They get like very extensive audits within their um, business to see where they, they stand against societal and environmental performance. If it's a sufficiently high uh, standard, they also need to, you know, continue to progress and make changes uh, because you're never really done. You're never really going to be perfect. So when people ask me now, like, can you name like a sustainable business I can shop from? And I'll tell them there are only more responsible businesses. There isn't actually a sustainable business. Because no one is fully 100% sustainable. We are not there yet. Even those at the top of the, of the line, like, for example, Patagonia is a fashion brand that most people would look to, uh, because they've been stewarding, uh, environmentalism since their early days, but they still go, there's more that we can do. There, it isn't done yet. The journey's not over. Don't pat us on the back yet. This is this is where we can go further. This is what we're going to do within two years, within three years, within four years, within five years. You can give us all the awards you want, but we're still going to keep going. So I think people have to also realize that it's not just a box you can tick. It is actually changing a system actually requires all of us to look very deep within to see what else, what else, what else, because there is always going to be something else. And we cannot stop with just picking like the lowest hanging fruits, patting ourselves on the back and saying, I'm done. Please, everyone, give me the award for being a sustainable business. Everyone shop for me. In fact, you should buy more from me because I am sustainable. No, you are not. We are not done. If the, if the leaders in responsible business are saying, I am not done. If I got this much in my B Corp certification, I can always do more. In fact, we're going to do this, 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 and this. Why are you stopping here? It gives a very false impression to consumers who a lot of people are just learning about, you know, the impacts towards our environment and the people and all living things in it because of the choices that we make. They just want to do good and all of this confuses them. All this greenwashing is so confusing to them that it can really also stifle their confidence into into this area where Well, if this doesn't work, like, why Why should I even bother? And that's not where we have, we cannot leave people like that. That's why we must always, like, grow together with the brands, with ourselves, with the corporations. We must always use it as, like, hey, I'm going to hold you accountable. We're going to hold ourselves accountable. We're going to hold each other accountable. And we can always do that.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate your nuances and your contextualizing that there is no indeed truly sustainable businesses, but responsible businesses. I think that's a very important thing to make. And I say that because anytime we tell ourselves that, oh, we're at the finish line, we're done, like I've learned enough, I've heard enough, I've educated enough, oh boy, oh boy, good luck with the rest of your life. That's when everything falls apart, your life becomes dull. And you become complacent, arrogant, ignorant, and whatever adjectives you want to insert. So I think it's like James Clear's idea around atomic habits of progression, not perfections. Aim for the incremental 1% gain every single day over 365 days. That's 365%. That's three times whatever effectiveness you're aiming for. And I think that's achievable because it's incremental rather than. Let's burn down the government. Let's burn all the plastics and let's, where are we going to live in the meantime? Right. That's not very realistic. So I think being realistic while staying optimistic and not satisfied with the progression is what's going to take us there as a whole. So I appreciate what you said. I think that's very important for us to hear.
0: I really like what you said about progression, not perfection. And I really like how you attached all of those egoistic words and adjectives to it because I never really thought about it that way that this whole feeding of ego like sustainability has been about feeding a lot of people's egos as well that's why a lot of it becomes performative right because they want the pats on the backs rather than true true progression within themselves and, and the businesses they're conducting so thank you so much for that perspective Ben
1: yeah so on that note in terms of feeding the ego and a lot of these, I say this with caution because I'm in a helping profession as a clinician. That's my full-time job in addition to being a podcaster, that I have to remind myself that I'm not a savior. I'm not here to change someone's life. So I'm just doing my job. But I happen to love human psychology, emotionality, going through traumas or healing. And I have to remind myself because I was like, oh, I don't have to donate today because I'm in a helping profession. That's very dangerous and very insidious. So my question to you, Melissa, is during your years lately working in the sustainabilities and the whole green movement space, have you noticed people with savior complex, as we call it, right? we're like, oh, I'm the savior. I'm going to be the one changing the game X, Y, and Z. And at least for me, I could tell when some people are in it for the wrong reasons, for the self-gratifying reasons. Like, how do you deal with that? And do you notice that? with the recent woke washing, as you called it?
0: I think my radar isn't as strong as yours then, but I, I, yeah, definitely. At the same time, I also don't want to be in such a state of jadedness that I doubt their intentions up front. So I try and give people the benefit of the doubt, even though I am pretty jaded and I do tend to be like pretty critical internally. I, I try and, you know, check myself and like take a step back and like, hey, maybe they just haven't learned enough and they are going to continue to evolve Um, we were all that before I always try and remind myself hey I was a shopaholic I was in the early parts of of my you know zero waste living I did think that you know, like, this is the way. I We've solved it, you guys. <laughs> why isn't anyone doing it? Why isn't everyone doing this? And then along the way, you always learn the nuances of why this is a challenge and why we have to continue to push ourselves to overcome these challenges together and, like, fit it into different people's um, situations and life conditions that might make it a little bit more challenging for them than it would have been for you. It's kind of like a a symptom of our current market where there everything is fun in marketing. Everything is now storytelling is the new marketing. And it's so pervasive that everything needs to be wrapped in a story. So everything is going to sound a lot more com- convincing when it's humanized in the form of storytelling. Then it becomes a little bit harder even or not even harder to detect, but we then get even more desensitized to it. Which is tragic because now we're desensitized to human elements. It's tough. And I, I really do like empathize with the position that brands are in because they are still in a competitive market. They still have to survive. And for every initiative that they do, they, I know they do feel like they have to shout, shout it out loud at the top of the roof, even though it was a very minor change. For example, Hey guys, we are now using less plastic it's like is that great it's not enough but i see why you have to shout it out so that people recognize you for it and you still have to compete with people who are conventional who are not doing anything so you have to give yourself every edge that you can so that you can go a lot longer so they can make more progress But what we can hope for them is that you don't just stop at that. You don't just stop at the low hanging fruit. It's a very toxic place to be in. And I am a little bit glad that I don't run a business that is dealing with, you know, consumer goods to be able to face all those quandaries because it is not an easy place to be. And I I do, you know, really empathize with what everyone has to go through.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's what makes you a very effective and sustainable, pun intended, Im- impact maker, because you empathize and you understand the other side. Because I think uh, a very big issue I see in my profession, and a helping profession, is a lot of younger folks, they're driven by idealism. They're like, oh, I want to change the world. Oh, I want to save this. And they mean it. And that pure, untainted idealism is important, but it, it hasn't been st- uh, tested by life. They don't know what they're getting into. They haven't really experienced a reality of what a helping profession means. But then when a lot of those people that's why become social justice warriors, it flips too far to the left side where they're like, if you're not against me, you're, if you're not with me you're against me, how dare you? You're right. Labeling culture, canceling culture. I think that gap happens because they don't have context of what they're doing, but you do because you're in the fast fashion before. So now you empathize with the business logistics, with the intricacies, with the quandaries, as you said, because I can't even imagine being in one of the most competitive and saturated space of fashion. You also have to be cognizant of the waste, your branding, your storytelling. That, that's so very difficult, right? And what you said, I want to highlight for the listeners, Melissa. You talked about even storytelling has become commod- commoditized. And become a, a package thing, right? My, I think my heart actually died a little bit when, you, when I heard that because podcast is storytelling. That's, it's the purest, long-form, unscripted storytelling. And I even see that where even now in real time with you, I was like, oh, man, I wonder how many listeners are actually taking away what I'm taking away from the space with you. Because I could feel and hear the pain in your voice, the jadedness, the cynicism you have to fight, I'm sure, every single day, right? And that's not easy at all. So it's sad that even the human element is getting diluted, so to speak. To uh, spike up some optimism, I want to share a quick story. And uh, i like to ask for your thoughts too. So one of my friends from years ago, he worked for SAP as a consultant, the German software company, and he actually single-handedly initiated the eliminations of plastic cups, like red Solo cups in his entire he- uh, headquarter in Pennsylvania. And he did a whole elaborate presentations, a lot of evidence, and they were able to switch all their plastic cups into mugs, like coffee mugs. And it was actually more financially sustainable as well. So the SAP did it. I share that because I think a lot of people, especially people who are environmental enthusiasts, who want to make a dent in the sustainability realm, because it's very complex and convoluted. I think a lot of them are turned off or overwhelmed by the totality of, oh no, how am I, a single person, going to contribute to reducing waste on a global level? That's too much, right? And likewise, you have to separate that. You cannot view that as this big monster of totality. You have to say, wait a minute, large corporations, they're comprised of decision makers like you and I. And those individuals make up these large entities, so-called governments, or so-called fashion or so-called X, Y, and Z. And I think once you change your perspective, it becomes more palpable and tangible. Like, okay, I'm not changing the world. I'm changing people like you and I, one person at a time. And over time, you could create a ripple change, right? So for you, I know that you're very big on finding your power locally when the world is burning down right? That's how you ground your optimism in a way. I, I know a lot of your uh, Instagram posts posted about that, how to focus on the local races, focus on the local work. I would love for you to share your seasons of optimism, cynicism, hope, despair.
0: People do think that, you know, in order for them to contribute to the environmental um, sustainability of our planet, that we all have to be activists. We all have to quit our jobs and go join Greenpeace, but we we really don't. Change has to happen internally within every organization, within every family, within every community, and it requires initiative. It's such a simple thing. It actually just requires initiative. So I really applaud your friend uh, in SAP who just, you know, it's just because he, as one person, just stood up and said, why don't we do this, you guys? Like, it's so simple. Um... And because of that, there was that whole scale that was unlocked. Because within an in, within like one simple step, like thousands of people stopped using plastic cups in in the office every day. And there's so much potential for everyone. Like some some people, they some people I meet, they go like, "Oh, but I work, you know, and like gas. Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm the enemy." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you're an energy company that could be a sustainable energy company. There is so much." waste that's already happening in the office that you could influence uh what projects get get proposed what um funding goes into you know different energy sources uh you could be part of changing the mix of energy sources that your company provides it could start have start with you like even if you're like a fresh grad uh an associate you in five years you you no longer are in one year you no longer are or you could even rise up pretty quickly um within the organization because of the alternative views that you can bring. For example, a lady was in I think she was in investments in one of the largest banks in uh regionally in Asia. She just started with little initiatives in the office uh so little sustainable initiatives you know doing like a library of things doing like um you know byo whatever and through all these little things she they then said hey you're obviously leading a lot of these self-driven initiatives even though you're in investment banking why don't you be head of sustainability why don't you drive where the the bank now goes in terms of sustainable investments or um you know decoupling from like coal investments and things like that and it all started with just initiative, and that is the potential that everyone can unlock in every place that they're in, no matter how small or how big you are. Even if you're just, you know, if what you view yourself as a bottom level, or even if you're the CEO, everyone always thinks, no, if the CEO doesn't want it, it does, it means it doesn't get done. No, the CEO doesn't come up with all the ideas. All the, it all comes up trickling, bubbling from underneath, and good ideas get recognized. People are always looking for good ideas. So you just have to you know, be persistent in putting them out there and like taking action on them and then mobilizing your community, the people around you who agree with you or who don't even agree with you to buy into the idea, to like see this come to life and balancing between like the cynicism and optimism. I love what you said about how the young young folks go into it with a lot of rah-rah because they're so driven by idealism. And I think we are all like, we all need that shred of idealism in us because we have to be able to see what the end goal is like. Um, and then temper it down with like the cynicism around along the way so that we keep things realistic so that we can always focus on progression and not perfection. Like you said, I think the thing that really helps me is you brought up the whole concept of acting local. And I think it was Jane Goodall that kind of put this perspective, uh, in a way that made me that resonated with me, which was why you have to act local, was because you needed to see it succeed in order to be able to drive you for the long run. If you start with a goal that was too high, like we're going to solve the global plastic pollution crisis, how you would have been knocked down pretty quickly when you see what you're doing not impact the the greater the, the greater problem. So you have to start small so you can see success. So that success drives your next success. And that success keeps getting, keeps growing along the way as you kind of equip yourself with more capabilities to be able to do something a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. And each success is going to drive you. And each failure is also going to teach you something new so that you can achieve the next success. What also helps me with other than that perspective is also Um, to temper between optimism and cynicism. Cynicism gets me really, really down because obviously all of us are being assaulted again with news of environmental damage. The wins are a lot lesser than than the, the losses. And when we lose, we lose things on a very grand scale. We might recover this small part of the forest and then the next day, they will just level like acres of like... Virgin proceed rainforest without a second thought and then you're it's it's really hard to balance. So what really helps me is you need to be in you need to put yourself in spaces where people can energize each other with ideas and support each other's uh, initiatives, uh and, and do things together, build things together. If it's you alone, especially in content creator world, it's you alone, in your with your laptop, with your phone, with your whatever, it can get dark really quickly so you need to put yourself in you have to go outdoors urban farm and start gardening with them start to get like in touch with the people around you and 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 things that you can see physically tangibly in front of you so that that will be the thing that fuels you to do all the other work that takes that that can really drain you that really needs all of that to feed this
1: And I think a one key ingredient is not just having a slice of idealism, as you said, but really keep your passion in check that you're doing this for the right reason, like the power of why by Simon Sinek. Otherwise, nothing's going to last long, right? You have a lot of great one liners throughout this interview, but you said something about could become. Like, yes, my business or your business or whatever business is not sustainable yet, but that business has the potentiality and could become a more responsible corporate or business. And that reminds me of a quote. The quote goes something like, when you let go of who you are, then you might become who you are meant to be. So I think a lot of times you have to look past the present. Of course, like power of now is very important, but it's a good way to remind us that who we are, our endless potential isn't now. It's in the future, if you keep being determined and very intentional then you might unlock the version of what your potential or what you're predestined to be i love that quote from you so
0: i really like what you said about letting go of who you were um which for someone that's like super nostalgic but like i am it's really hard to do um i came from you know modeling in that very idealistic world of fashion and it's very tempting to stay in that space because, you know, you know, you'll always get looks, you'll you always be admired because you'll always be dressed to the nines. And, and you know, you'll have a team of people who are going to make you look good. And, and it's, you always get something really juicy to put on social media. And the more that I spoke out about environmentalism, it also meant that I needed to live through my values. Uh, I needed to, you know, not take on brands to work with that didn't align. I needed to say, start saying no to a lot of things because how could I really tell people to take action and then not take action myself? It was a sacrifice to some extent, but I needed to let go of it. And that really opened up all these other things for me because then... You know, the more responsible brand said, hey, look at her like look, she's actually doing it. She's not just paying lip service to it. And if I was too afraid to let go of that, I would never have done this. Um, but because of that, I also have to, to give a caveat here that it was relatively easy for me to let go of it because I knew the runway to modeling was short. It was a relatively less painful price to pay because of that. And I also want it to be this vehicle where if you are going to be assaulted by marketing through social media over and over again, I don't want to be yet another assault on your eyeballs. Let me kind of break the, moment, the monotony of all the advertising and, and give you a little bit of a thinker of like, hey, what about this? Like, why have you not considered this? And, you know, that hopefully gets to change someone else by, you know, by 1%. Just planting a seed, just planting a seed, just planting a seed. And that's kind of like where I, I want people to go through, you know, a very similar evolution to stay curious, to be able to go down through different rabbit holes because that's what I did. And it's all enabled by someone else. It was someone else holding your hand and say, hey, this this is all the things that you haven't seen. This is all the perfect, perspective that you haven't discovered. What about the food we eat? What about the fashion we wear? What about the why are our communities so disconnected now why are we not being as neighborly as we used to be all of these things are interconnected and we if we stay curious to start jumping through rabbit holes and then someone else grabs your hand so someone else grabbed my hand because of what the work that they've done and then i can grab someone else's hand and, and pull them along the way like hey come down with me come down with me and that way we get to evolve our our human race to be more conscious people. Like a ripple effect, like you said, ripple effect, but also it's very much network based.
1: Yeah, I have a follow up question to that. So you, uh, you talked about power of association in our first questions about like, oh, by attaching yourself to a bigger platform, you grab more eyeballs and attentions. And right. So power of, power of association is ubiquitous in every sectors, every sectors of life, whether it's networking, whether it's friends or romantic partners or promotions. So whether it's now or before, feel free to take this however you want to take it, Melissa. But how do you approach like networking and power of association now as this more conscientious advocate of Melissa Tan versus the old model Melissa Tan? And how do you hope to continue to leverage the positive power of associations to keep scaling up the impact you're making? Because you're already making a lot of good changes. But continue to do it on a bigger and bigger scale uh, down the road.
0: There is definitely a lot of navigating of like brand names, even in the space. So I've been really lucky to be able to work with a lot of major names in the environmental space, like, you know, being an ambassador for Earth .org and, you know, leading Fashion Revolution, the Malaysian chapter of it. Um, and it was. All being able to put my energy in bigger network that could amplify it a lot further. So I can do what I can do as an individual and I can build my own platform, which I do. But if I throw my weight behind fashion revolution, that means it could accelerate that a lot faster. And while that may not contain the same name recognition, we can all... um rub off on each other for sure so i tend to wear different hats and then i take out the right hat when the time comes to it so that i can sort of bring that association to each project and hopefully it means that more attention is being paid to it and then we can create more impact that way so for example with a recent project of ours which was in penang there was this trash island that hit the news um nationally because it was a beautiful, like very marine biodiverse, very um environmentally important island in Penang, which was covered with trash because it had decades worth of trash. And it's an amazing site. Amazing as in like, it'll blow your mind site, because it was like, you know, a feet deep of plastic bottles throughout the island. It's amazing. And, you know, we we, started, we wanted to do a lot more with this project because we didn't want it to just be another cleanup. We didn't Cleanups itself are not a solution to the plastic pollution problem, but it can be used as a vehicle for change. For example, the data that goes into it, can, can, if you feed it into the right channels, you feed it into the scientific community, into policymakers, that will influence where their policies are being made. Uh, If you use it as a way for a community to engage with the plastic pollution problem so that it influences their lifestyle changes, that's a way that it can go a lot further. If within the the cleanup itself, use it as a model for what cleanups should be or as a vehicle to amplify the plastic pollution problem to a global audience a lot more. Um, That's where it can go. It can't just be, look at us, pat on the back. We cleaned up this amount of trash and we feel good about ourselves. But then that impact stops there. No, Let's take each cleanup as an opportunity to open to so much more. So then that's where I brought in my Earthday.org hat and then I put it on. And say, okay, if I put on this hat, it means I'm no longer Melissa Tan. I'm Melissa Tan plus a global audience because then this gets amplified as a model to other areas uh, outside of Penang, outside of Malaysia. We're not inventing the wheel. We're not even reinventing the wheel. We're just being an example of this is how we can do it simply um uh, and these are the steps to be able to do it and these are all the considerations we can do and this might be useful for your context in your space in your um it's just giving us a lot of case studies so that people can pick and choose what fits them to be able to be come uh to make more impact out of what they want to do as well
1: yeah it's amazing one thing i want to highlight from what you just said melissa is that impact makers and impact make- making comes in different sizes Right? Uh, I say that as a former policymaker, I worked in the policy sector in Philadelphia for six years before my pivot into the clinical field, and complex issues often require complex solutions. However, sometimes simple solutions can create some big changes within complex problems. I've seen that in policymaking, I've seen that in clinical field, I've seen that, I'm sure you've seen it in whatever field, right? And that is truth. So I I share that because I'm sure a lot of people are hearing about this and they're like, oh, I want to do something about this. Not everything has to be so glamorized and complex and high level. Sometimes one single action and impact makers can be all of us. It doesn't have to be you repping uh, earthday.org on the highest global level. It could be like me wearing a green shirt for this interview as an awareness and then maybe eat less meat for this week or for someone else to recycle for the first time. And I think that's very important for all of us to internalize. That impact-making comes in different sizes, and sometimes complex solutions can be positively influenced by simple and small solutions.
0: Your influence, people are always influenced by you and by what you do, and it doesn't mean... And people are always watching monkey see, monkey do. So oftentimes the most impact that I feel is when I do something simple, like demonstrate how I do one thing or like show it consistently within the way that I live my life. And the person next to me, even though it might be a stranger, goes, I should I should have done that. I'll get it from my car right now. Uh, I, I, I have I already have a container. Why didn't I bring it out? And, and then they do it as well. And I think we need to be living examples of of what the world can look like. These aren't our alternative ideas anymore. It should be how we design the world going forward. And to be able to do that, we need to make it normalized. We need to normalize it by being living examples of it every day for other people to see. Because if you just keep telling them information about, say, plastic pollution, that's not going to impact them. They're just going to get desensitized to it. But If they see it every day to the people around them, that's what's going to change.
1: Yeah, even with metaverse coming and uh, virtualizations of almost everything, I think that real human context and seeing a real human doing something that you agree or respect or admire that's that chemistry is real and that's like the last forefront that we have left with human nature being commoditized and storytelling being packaged very strategically i think that real in-person encounter is very very powerful and i love what you said so i want to take this moment and honor something that in terms of earthday.org because obviously Earth Day is the, um, the organization that established Earth Day more than 50 years ago in the United States and created this global presence. And it's one of the largest spokesperson for the Earth movement. And of course, you being an ambassador of that, I'm sure in 2020, according to the research, that w- must have been a pretty wild experience. It's almost like the Mount Everest for the uh, sustainable advocates, right, to be associated with And I think it's sometimes in life, I've experienced this, of course you have too, where when you're on a very arduous and very tedious and difficult path, because your path is not the path of least resistance. You chose one of the hardest path and the path of the highest resistance, trying to create and reduce waste globally. Sometimes life, you can call it life, God, universe, the source, whatever you want to call it. I think it provides you with some affirmations that, hey, Melissa, you're on the right path, keep doing. And I think it's these affirmations, these wins solidifies our mission and that, you know what, this is a tough path. I chose the path of the highest resistance because of my values, but I'm on the right path. Can you walk us through what that moment was like and just the whole journey, whatever you want to share?
0: You're right. It definitely fired me up for some time. Um, it was right smack in the middle of the pandemic. I think I ran a digital Earth Day. Because, like, you know, it was the beginning where everyone was just still trying to figure out what, like, lives were like. And, like, the webinars. The endle- it was the start of, like, an endless source of webinars on- online. I always go through this process when I put together an, a, a thing. For example, like, a digital Earth Day or, like, Fashion Revolution Week, which we do every year. Um. It takes a lot of effort. And throughout that time, you're constantly questioning yourself. This was my own initiative. Why am I putting myself through hell to do this? Like, what is the impact? Because you can't see it yet. So to receive an affirmation like that at the end was definitely something that showed me that I was doing the right thing. So, um, thank you for that. And I think at the same time, I always think of myself as like, I'm still a kid, even though I'm not anymore. And I always, you know how like they always have like youth programs and like um youth leadership programs. And I was like, that's for me. And then I always look at the age group <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like beyond the age of being even able to apply for this. So I'm always getting these like checks on myself of like, you're meant to be growing the next generation now, Melissa. It's no longer like about someone mentoring you because I always have this like, I really enjoy being mentored so that, you know, like I, I want to always see that evolution. Um, so at the same time, it's important for us to then pass on those affirmations to someone else that may be starting out on their journey and then supporting them on their, on what they're trying to do so that, you know, we can, in the end, it has to be sustainable. It can't just be, you know, you as a 60-year-old trying to gather all of that for yourself because you are only one person. You can only do so much. What we need is to be changing the culture. And for that, we need to build up change makers everywhere.
1: This is a pretty old study from Harvard Business School, and they examined a same cohort of Harvard Business students who chose mentorship as their corporate perks and requirements versus a Group of cohort students who chose high salary, high benefits, high package. And they did a 10 years of longitudinal studies and a follow-up. And the outcome was the people who chose mentorship had like 35% or higher salary differences. They were in a better position. They were more mature. They were more satisfied, more happy. And the power of mentorship is very much real. And of course, that was a memory I recall from years ago. So I urge the people to do their own research, but just look up Harvard Business School and mentorship. And I think you will see some of the benefits that Melissa is talking about. So to that end, you now as a mentor, no longer as a youth mentee, right? Because you have the influence, you have the ability, you have the knowledge, you have the passion. Uh, Do you have any mentees you work with or do you have any mentorship program you are thinking about starting or once again, power of association? Now you have the opportunity moving forward with your life because you're still pretty young uh, to become that platform for the younger people to attach themselves to.
0: So I mainly operate as a lone wolf, which is not healthy. <laughs> Especially when you're trying to do a lot of things, I try and do everything, and then I'll, I'll just do it, and I won't tell anyone about it, and then I'll I'll just try and complete it myself, and that burns me out. Obviously, leadership has never really been natural for me. So even when with going through fashion revolution and building a team, that has been a very uncomfortable process for me, and mentoring. Is not something that's natural for me as well, so it has to be a very conscious effort on my on my side. Like I've been trying to get to know, you know, like young people through the projects that that I, I run, but it needs to have a more structured approach to it rather than what I'm trying to do. And it's definitely on the bucket list for me. Um, thank you for highlighting that, and it's something that I need to work on, and I acknowledge that I need to work on.
1: Hopefully, you will check out this episode whenever it's aired once in a while as a real reminder that, oh, yeah, I talked about this with Ben, and then maybe I can groom my own self to become the future leader to guide. We always say the youth is the future. No, youth is the now. That's true. Like, I think people, as society at large, we underestimate what youth, like they just, they're not just young. They have infinite energy, infinite optimism. They don't break. Their bones heal in two days, right? Like they don't burn out. They don't. So I think uh, we need to give more credits to the youth than we do now. And I think having a great mentor like yourself or other people is a great way on a societal level to steer the right ship towards the right directions.
0: I definitely. It's, a, it's on the bucket list. And in the meantime, I, I see it as if I can build opportunities, I will build opportunities for them to get involved in. So what I try and do is I try and take a step back instead of wanting always to be like, no, I'll be the front facing. I'll be the speaker. I'll be the headliner. Instead of doing that, I put the thing together. For example, the fashion revolution week, you know, I put young artists and like young eco influencers up front instead of saying, no, everything is Melissa. So it takes, it, it is kind of like an ego check, ego check. It's a healthy ego check throughout as well, because you need to, again, make more change makers instead of hogging it for yourself.
1: Yeah, it's better to uh, check your own ego than for life to check your ego through the hardest, painful lessons. So yeah, every time I feel like I'm on top of the world, God is like, nope, you're going to learn. And I've I've experienced that my entire life. That's why I'm very intentional and reflective. But I want to zoom in on what you just said, which is surprising to me because you seem very extroverted. Obviously, you're a model. You're used to be on TV. So I didn't really notice or I didn't think about the discomfort you have to deal with right? Being, trying to connect with people, being outspoken or being a spokesperson for Fashion Revolution Week or Earth Day or whatever that you do. Can you talk about that? Because I think the ability to deal with discomfort or to be comfortable with uncomfortable is a superpower that a lot of people need to cultivate more. Because I think now in 2022, a lot of people are comfortable. We want to shy away from the danger, shy away from the discomfort. That's why I said you chose a path of high resistance because it's tough work that you do. It's greedy work. So can you talk about how you approach the discomfort, whatever the size is?
0: Yeah, so I'm like a mega introvert and I have put myself into spaces that are really uncomfortable because I also realized that the world, I don't know if you've read this this book, Quiet by Susan Cain. It talks about the power of introverts and what introverts bring to the, to the world, but it also talks about the reality of how the world rewards extrovertism. If yours is the loudest one in the room, it means you're the one that gets heard. It doesn't matter what background work you've actually done, and the world often recognizes it as such. At the same time, so I think a lot of introverts, they train themselves to be extroverts because it's just a matter of survival. You know, if you want to get ahead, you have to do that. So I've put myself in spaces where... You have no choice but to be an extrovert and you have to build your, you know, your public speaking, your front facing self instead of hiding in a corner, making friends with a dog, which is where I would rather be. Why we're able to do this is because obviously it's a one on one conversation and introverts excel in, in one on ones rather than in big groups. Even early on, like I hate sales. Like I hate, I really hate sales. At some point in time in my life, I went into um, financial planning sales insurance. It was more driven by my endless want to know. Of, uh, I, I'm really interested in the details and every salesman won't be able to give me the details because they're only interested in selling you stuff. So they're only, only going to tell you all the good stuff, but I want to dig into into the final legal print, what is covered, what is not. And because of that, I became an ins- I went into insurance to be able to equip myself with that information but because of that, obviously, sales is a big part. It means that I had to be that person, be a receptive listener and then like churn back out to be able to tell you, I guess, like be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And then now, you know, being an environmental speaker, being like a content creator, it is still really uncomfortable for me, um, especially with the content creation part, because obviously a lot of extroverts gravitate naturally to it because it's just about putting themselves out there. And like living their best life and telling people about it, which I, it's just, it just doesn't feel right. And it still doesn't feel right. But I have to be able to create opportunities for myself to do that. Or else someone else would learn. So I guess when we put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, it's always to. With an end goal in mind, and sometimes you have to take the hits to be able to get the wins. If I want to influence more people, it means that I have to continue. I have to expand my comfort level, my comfort zone to all these different areas that I would usually not touch um, to be able to achieve achieve that end goal.
1: So a quick uh, follow through, and this could be a short answer too, but do you feel like all the hits, as you said, you've been taking? As an introvert putting yourself out there for the sake of impact, you think that's been paying off for you?
0: Yeah, definitely. I guess, you know, whatever whatever you do that is uncomfortable for you, it is still going to carry elements of your version of it. This is an introvert's version of doing this in trying to be an extrovert. So it's going to look different than what an extrovert would do. For example, you know, an extrovert might be shouting out about all these things, but because I'm I like the details. I like the analytics of it. That's, what, that's the part that I'm going to give you. So you're going to get a different perspective from me than what you would get from someone else. And that person is going to bring a different perspective than what I can bring. And that way, we are all adding to the conversation that's going to, give, that's going to enhance the way that you learn things because we're all going to give you a different take on it. And you know, it's not like one is better than the other. It's just that this is going to build you, this is going to build the collective consciousness in different ways. We actually need people who don't give you the details who are only giving you the marketing the jazzy words and marketing because that's what's going to catch people's attention It's not because it's not that that is less valuable than the more detailed analysis that I that I would like to inject into my content it's that that might be a gateway to this or this might be a gateway to this or. People might use this to attract a greater crowd. And then when you're, when you are ready to jump down the rabbit hole, you come and look at me and I will not even be the most detailed. Then I will funnel you into other, other platforms that go into even greater detail than what I can bring. So we're all different faces of the same movement and each of us are creating our own influence into the collective goal.
1: Yeah, the, I loved when you said that even if you're doing extrovert things, you look different doing it because you're an introvert. And I think that's what unique means, right? Like Every single one has our unique sets of genetics and our footprints, our unique footprints. So it's literally impossible for Melissa Tan to do something that's exact same as an extrovert version of Melissa Han or something. That's literally impossible. And I think that's really important for people to focus on so you're not deterred by, oh, am I just copying someone? Am I just being a copycat? Am I just following the trends? As we said earlier, it's like, no, you're being yourself and you're actually doing the, a more courageous thing in, a, in some elements because like to me, talking or being on camera comes pretty natural to me, right? Um, but then I'm not as detail-oriented as you are because I know your Instagram posts are very elaborative. I said that in my introductions. It's not flattery. I don't do flattery. Like I've read a lot of your blog posts and a lot of your social media, Instagram posts, and they are very lengthy and very context heavy. And I think that's why you have a great social media presence because people can tell without knowing fully who Melissa is that, okay, this advocate, this environmental speaker, this whatever, she cares about what she's putting out because you can tell the extensive effort you put into your writing. very very detailed and i think that that's why it works that's your unique melissa introverted print to doing this extroverted thing
0: ah thank you and at the same time i'm gonna say it's not going to resonate with everyone (laughs) especially in a in a platform like so like instagram where people just want really bite-sized stuff and like a quick dopamine hit and and move on so there are pros and cons to that
1: yeah but you're saying true to yourself right so in terms of uh, you talked about collective consciousness, I know um, in a lot of your blog posts and on your online, you talk about the importance of circular solutions within community work. Can you talk more about what do you mean by circular solutions? Or why is it a non-negotiable? Like Why do we have to do this to achieve the collective consciousness you're speaking about?
0: Nothing's truly sustainable if it's not circular. So I think that When we redesign things, we have to design them with circularity as an end goal. And it might not be perfect from the start. It might not be fully circular from the start, but we can always shift closer and closer to that being a reality. So if we we start back, just a quick refresher for everyone, we're working in a linear system where people take resources, we make products, we use them for shorter and shorter periods of time now, and then we waste them without recovery of the resources to go around. But Earth doesn't operate as a circular system. If we take humans out of the picture, we take our systems out of the picture. Humans used to be circular as well. The Earth is, you know, a closed system. Everything just goes around over and over again. And that's how it was sustained for millions and millions and billions of years. Um, And humans used to be like that as well. Everything that we used, we got from the Earth. Everything that came from the Earth, they went back into the Earth because we didn't invent forms of plastic yet and other, you know, methods of extraction and waste. In our planet, there is no such thing as waste. It is humans that create waste. So everything that we use right now is not circular, but, you know, people are realizing that, you know, this is not, we, we, this is what is unsustainable. That's why we need to redesign to become a circular solution, uh, a more circular system. And I really focus on community circularity is because, um, you know, we are, we're talking about like global supply chain issues now where everything is being disrupted. It, it gets harder and harder to put food in onto shelves. Milk powder is now in shortage is now an issue in, in the US. Oil is, you know, being disrupted right now. It's all based on a system that is built like a pack of cards and the cards are tumbling. It is unrealistic for us to think that we can continue on this way without trying to, trying to overhaul the system. We can't just put band-aids everywhere and try and reroute things and and try and like extract it from somewhere else, usually a more poorer country that doesn't have as much legal protection so that we can exploit somewhere else and impact that economy so that we can prop up ours for a short period of time. A lot of people focus on circular community solutions is because it is a smaller system, smaller scale. That relies more on the sharing economy, on, you know, neighbors taking care of neighbors rather than trying to fix the global economy at scale first. All of that, those two things have to happen at the same time. But what I can focus on is on community solutions. So that is things like extending the life of items instead of us all consuming and wasting at this accelerated rate. Why don't we optimize the utility of the products that are already being made? so that we all get the most utility out of it without extracting more and without wasting more so that's things like for example i like to do community clothes swaps so instead of people continuing to buy fast fashion and throwing them away we communalize our resources it just requires relationship building and putting processes simple processes in place so that we can circularize um stuff locally instead of thinking too hard about what the upstream and downstream is because that is a bit harder to control in in the perspective of the community
1: yeah that makes sense and it's like similar to what we talked about the real human connection the real human element makes that mission makes this community a lot tighter so i think when you're actually doing a communal clothes swap or whatever communal circular activities you guys all consensually partake in I think that's a greater buy-in for everyone that's partaking in it because you're like, oh, I'm not just friends with Melissa. We're not just neighbors. We actually swap clothes for a greater cause, for a good reason. And I feel like that naturally deepens a relational bridge that everyone shares in that community as well.
0: If everyone does this and is replicated across communities around the world, it is going to change the way the global supply chain works as well. Okay, let's talk about a lawnmower. We all don't need 50 different brands and companies making lawnmowers that break down every three years for all each of our households to have a lawnmower. We actually only need two companies doing lawnmowers really well that last 20 years. And all those lawnmowers are just one lawnmower in one community, one lawnmower in another neighborhood. Everyone takes care of that lawnmower. That's how we can redefine what consumption is, consumption that is based on utility and access to that utility, access to that service, rather than possession, rather than something that we just, you know, it can't be just about snapping our finger and like, I'm going to solve my problem with money by ordering something online. That's the part that's truly unsustainable.
1: A lot of intentional series of decisions must be made. But once again, as we said throughout this episode, we can always start small, start locally So you don't lose your heart on day one and then gradually scale up your impact through a power of association, through networking, through mentorship, whatever other that may be. Yeah, we're definitely coming towards the end of the episode, Melissa. So before I hit you with the classic and the hallmark discover more question, I want to ask you two things. And it's the same question. And this is about access, as you said, right? Access to service, access to information matters as you just responded with. And this is about access of awareness for the listeners. So the first question is, what are some of the most promising and hopeful movements or global actions that's taking place right now in the space that you can tell the listeners about to uh, crank up their juice and to make them more excited and to fight that cynicism? And then the second question is a little bit more dark or we'll start from the positive.
0: I just want to really point out what the power people can really do. So for example, Fashion Revolution started with two people after the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh where a garment factory collapsed because it was so unsafe uh killing, you know, thousands of workers and injuring like more than 2000 people and most of the major brands were making in that factory. So there's literally blood on your hands, you know, when you when you buy fast fashion. Fast uh, Fashion Revolution, you know, is now in 90 countries. And one of the greater things that has happened recently is that the European Citizen Initiative is being um, tabled. So they are introducing legislation to regulate the fashion industry, but only in Europe. So what that means is, even though the citizens got together and they're they're, they're collecting one million signatures now uh, that can only be signed by European passport holders, when the supply chain is so global, it means that is fact just trickles everywhere. So if a fashion brand wants to, you know, sell or is from Europe, they will be heavily regulated in terms of, you know, the welfare of their supply chain, the people that are making the clothes. Are they paid a living wage? Are they, you know, being treated fairly? And, and, and all of that jazz. Just from people gathering together and putting this together, that's going to change the entire fashion industry because now there is a standard to be upheld and most major brands would want to be, have a presence in Europe. So then they will have um, that trickle down throughout their supply chain, even if they're selling globally. Um, and all of these knock-on effects, you know, the ripple effect can work in many different ways. And sometimes it just starts with someone taking taking up, you know, the initiative to just sign this or to start an initiative like that, to table something like that, to gather people together, to change how things are going. Really, it all starts with a person's initiative. So I think that's one example that I can bring up. Here in Malaysia, there's a wonderful organization called Zero Waste Malaysia that, again, maybe like four years ago, there was probably like a couple of thousand people on it. And now there are 40 people thousand people, you know, following the lifestyle. And it just started with two women who said, you know, there's so much potential for us to cut waste. Why aren't we doing it? And then over the years, you know, they kept building and building and building resources so we can empower more people to be able to do it. And then then more businesses are able to do it as well. And it just started with two people. And I have been following their progress and using their resources from the beginning and using it to amplify to my platforms as well so that you know, it's a hive mind of learning that we can all build together. It isn't my IP, your IP. Um, this is going to benefit everyone and we cannot be selfish with it.
1: Yeah, the, uh, I love the hive mind, hive mind analogy because we're humans, right? Of course, we don't have the ability to create beehives or anything like that. But I think we work best as collectives because humans are social animals, period. So the second question is a little bit darker. I wanted to start us on the high notes, but I also want to want you as the expert in this field to portray a real alarmingness of climate change and everything that comes with industrializations of the world. Uh, What are some of the most alarming things that you think people need to be aware of now so they can at least have the awareness that could potentially down the road springboard some initiatives or actions?
0: it's funny like apart from fashion apart from like plastic which are very visual food is the other thing that concerns me the most because you know the way we grow food is really far from sustainable and it's also you know why so much so many of us are are unhealthy it's really weird what we can do with nature we don't let nature operate as nature we then try and fit nature into human systems and human levels of productivity but then it just shoots us in the foot in the end so globally you know our food system is literally built on cards uh, like a pack of cards and it can collapse at any at any point in time because our land cannot grow anymore there's only so much fossil fuel based um chemicals that you can pump into the ground to try and artificially grow food uh, before that entire area is just wiped out and then you have to keep you know felling rainforests perpetuating the decline of the climate of of our ecosystems to be able to grow new food so it's a very like slash and burn method of growing food and we're eventually going to run out of like land uh everyone keeps talking about lab grown meat lab grown vegetables hydroponic vegetables and we're moving further further into artificial artificiality when we need to return to what nature actually does so i'm really a big fan of like the permaculture movements the regenerative agriculture movements because it is a very realistic check of how we need to live within earth's boundaries because our food is not meant to be super pretty It's not meant to be you know, fully stocked shelves in the supermarket where we can waste as much as we want, where we can throw away things because there was a little bruise or the orange is a little bit smaller than the rest of the oranges. So much food actually gets wasted before it actually ends up on our plates. F&B businesses waste so much food along the way, but we tend to forget how much resources goes into each and every item of food before it lands into our plate. The amount of how long does it take to grow a tomato? If if anyone has tried gardening on their own, they know like, uh, why did I spend like three months trying to grow this tomato when I could have gotten one for like 20 cents in the supermarket? It's because that's the actual reality of it, but we're treating it as if it's 20 cents worth. And, you know, we're going to come to a place where food insecurity is going to be an even bigger and bigger issue. It's already a really big issue in a lot of other countries that are not as blessed as the U.S. or as or, or Malaysia, where food is so expensive, uh, crops are dying in the field because our climate is so erratic now that it we cannot, you know, grow food anymore. Like in Malaysia, our rice state, I think it used to have four harvests a year, and then it became two harvests a year. Now it's one harvest a year, and then this year they're saying. With all the flooding, I don't think we're going to harvest rice this year. Where do you think it's going to come from then if we don't fix this problem? In so many of our rice-producing countries, desertification is a very real issue where farmers are abandoning acres of land because it just cannot grow food anymore. Where does the the runway is going to end eventually? We have to fix it. So return your roots. Grow start community farms in Penang. There's a group of amazing environmentalists that are starting a food forest. They're recovering old palm oil plantations, which again have been desertified. They're recovering it to make it into a food forest, so that it benefits the community rather than trying to, you know, import food from somewhere else, which doesn't, which hasn't decimated all of their land yet, but eventually the the runway is gonna end.
1: Yeah, the uh, the monoculture phenomenon in America is very alarming, right? Even park is artificialized and even so air quotes nature is curated by humans. And you're like, oh, this is where you go. Here is a gate. You open the gate and now you're in the park. Now you're in nature. It's like, what? But to that, I have a, I had an interview with the founder of Integrative Institute of Design and he's a permaculture expert. Uh, that was released about seven or eight episodes ago for people who want to check it out. It's like a three-hour interview. He is way more in-depth and knowledgeable than I am. Check him out. I also interviewed Ross Raddy. He's like a YouTube influencer, and he is an expert arborist and home gardener. So he also talks a lot about permaculture, how to start from house plants, and then you can grow your own food and fruits, which tastes a lot better than even like Amish or family farms, right? They're very very high quality. The last resource I want to share is called the book Eating Animals by Jonathan Fowler. So as I shared with Melissa a couple months ago when we first connected, I was a vegan for an entire year and I was a vegetarian for about a year and I was a pescatarian for about three and a half years until I moved to LA and now I live in Koreatown with Korean barbecue every corner. So I, I unfortunately reintroduced meat after about five years of not eating meat. But once I read that book, Eating Animals, some of the statistics and some of the stories I've heard and some of the evidence about factory farming and added hormones, you just can't unsee that, right? So and and the book does a very artful job of portraying both sides because the book isn't about against meat. It's about against factory farming meats because family farms still have sustainable meats and those are okay. Uh, But it's a very powerful book. And I think it does a lot better than like conspiracies or some of the Netflix specials or. I think it's too propaganda heavy so people understand they're like, ah, this is all marketing and people tune out. Whereas this book, uh, the author Jonathan Fowler did it very, very skillfully and very honestly. So I'll recommend that resource as well. Speaking of resources, as you said, do you have any uh, resources uh, that you want to share with the listeners where they can maybe educate them a little bit further and have some uh, like a starting point? Because... We're overloaded with information nowadays.
0: So following the trend of food that we were talking about, I really like this Instagram account called A Growing Culture. They have been really shining a light on the, you know, the reality of like peasant farmers, how they're being held to ransom by huge corporations that, you know, perpetuate monoculture and, you know, keep farmers working like slaves in the fields uh, through a cycle of debt and poverty, and how, you know, land is being stolen from the indigenous and from peasant farmers like them um, to then perpetuate this unsustainable culture. So we're actively like destroying the heritage of knowledge that we have to growing through to make way even more for the system, the unsustainable system. So that's a really great resource. Fashion Revolution is a good resource for fashion, uh, The the darkness of the fashion industry. And how we can, you know, work our way out of that. That's so many, so many resources. Yeah, that's just a couple of the top of my head.
1: Uh, as always, I'll include those show notes in the episode descriptions below. So for people to do some, discover more about what they want to discover more about. So yeah, this is where I hit you with the signature, discover more questions, Melissa. It serves twofold to end this a very, very informative and insightful conversation with you today. First question is, after this insightful conversation, Melissa, what is an area or domain in your life, professional or personal, that you want to discover more about? That's the first question. The second question is, uh, what is an area in our listeners' lives that you want to A, either encourage or challenge to discover more about?
0: I think the takeaway from this was that great reminder that you gave me of you know, building other people up. Um, you know mentoring and and building the next generation so that's where I would probably discover more next also to unlock what else is there in me because the content creation world it's something that I haven't fully embraced because it went again against my grain it was something that I had to do because I had to do it I would want to learn how to make it more natural for me so that whatever educational stuff that I put out you know Remembering the why, like you said, was is going to be a lot more important because I need to inject back heart and love into everything that I do in order to have the impact that I want instead of being dragged down by jaded cynicism. And then what I want people to discover more about is uh, the potential within themselves to take action. For the environment and to see that ripple out through their family their friends their communities their workplaces i promise you that it it pays off in you way more than it does for the environment for example through my life i got to meet really inspiring people i got to learn so much more about myself i got to define my own sense of creativity and style instead of being manipulated by fashion trends i got to save a lot of money i got to devote my resources as limited as they are, time and whatnot, into areas that fulfill me rather than being pulled by the tidal waves of consumerism and fitting in and working through all these idealistic things that people are telling you that you should be aiming for. So I know it might come from the love of the environment and love of animals, but... When you love the world around you and act in accordance to that, it always pays back because you're creating a world that will benefit you. And have you tried in so many different ways rather than the initial two things that you set out to do?
1: Oh, I I feel motivated. I feel like uh, it's almost like 10 p.m. here, but I'm ready to do some action after that. But uh, yeah, thanks for the... I think that's a great thing for you to discover more about. Like I said, I think you're in a great position and uh, about the power of association to empower and instill the right resources for the next generations to come. So uh, hopefully you will take that call soon, and then for the listeners to also do something and, and start small, because you can always find power and claim power locally. Always. This is where we're all at the red carpet for you, Melissa. Uh, do you have any projects coming up? Where could people connect with you? Social media, everything in between.
0: I'm on hate Melissa Tan, on every platform, Instagram. Uh, LinkedIn. That's where you can find all my content. But also, just connect with me. Um, I'm always looking to discussing ideas and like seeing what else we can explore. Because you know, the ideas will come from everywhere. So I always need more questions, more like rabbit holes to run down myself, so that I can share them with more people. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, to all the listeners, uh, please. I just want to summarize. I think a very very important thematic topic of this interview is that fashion revolution started with two women right this union a citizenship movement with the legislations and all that is also started with the first person asking for petition that's going to eventually hit a million and i hope people who are listening never underestimate the potential that's within us because if there is one there is many right if you care about this cause if you want to do something about it That means the chances are there's more than you who's also in the same boat, the same belief, same value. And that's what makes humans human is that we are social creatures. And it's the bond that makes us on the top of the apex hierarchy in the world. So, and lastly, uh, the YouTube analytics shows that about 75% of the watchers are not subscribed. And this is a true free show with no hidden strings attached because I believe in providing free values without any hidden agenda so please if you can subscribe like and share this to a friend if you found this conversation insightful or provided any value in your life that will really motivates me to keep this doing for another three years another 10 years and lastly uh, thank you always for giving us your attention your time and for choosing curiosity and nuances and hopping on this weeks of discover more and as always hope to see you again next time thank you